So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen, beloved. As we meditate on this, I just hope that we can grow together in our sense of confidence in all that God has done. That Christian, the cross and crown of Jesus Christ gives unshakable confidence. And I don't know if you feel that confidence this morning. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I'm having not even from here, I'm not even sure what's going on in Graham. But I know that wherever you are, whether it's a, a sickness or a diagnosis or a family struggle or, you know, political news or whatever it might be that is tempting you to lose your confidence in God and his word and what he has done in Christ. As we meditate on these verses that Paul wrote uh, two millennia ago, I pray that we will be renewed together in our sense that the cross and crown of Christ can give you unshakable confidence, that you can make that boast in Christ with joy and no reservation. So what is our hope? Paul says mentions hope three times, well, a lot of times in this passage. We have three major sources of hope in these uh, 12 verses. We hope first in glory, secondly in our sufferings, and thirdly in God himself. We hope, we boast, we have confidence in glory, in our sufferings, and in God himself. So first we, we hope or we boast, I'm going to say boast, in glory. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. Because in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We announce the good news about Jesus and we see that God is right and good. He always keeps all of his promises and he always fulfills all of his obligations. And so when he says he will forgive us in Christ, he will do it. When he says he is a holy and just God, and yet we look in the world and in our own lives and see our sin that we do confess week in and week out as Christians. And we wonder, how can God be good and tolerate me? Tolerate us. Tolerate this world. How can he be righteous? Well, the good news about Christ is we see how God can be righteous because Christ died for our sins. So we, verse 1, have been justified by faith. God declares us right and gives us his righteousness as his gift. What a precious gift it is. As you take the elements later, just remember, as you're receiving bread and cup, 
is a sign that you receive righteousness as a gift that God has given us in Christ. And that's been Paul's focus, focus so far but from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 4, that this righteousness comes as a gift, it's received through faith, and so we're justified by faith in Christ. It's been said that that doctrine, that truth, is the foundation of the church. It's the article, the truth, on which the church stands or falls. If we get that wrong down the line, everything else will get lost as well. That we are made right with God, not by our own works, not by things we do or anything we bring in our hands. As we sang already, right? He needs nothing. We come empty-handed to receive. It's a solid foundation the rest of the house can be built on. And it is a solid foundation. And in chapter 5, now Paul turns to say, what is the house we build on that foundation? So you don't build a foundation to move into it. Right? You build a foundation... So you can have a stable house to live in. And so beginning in Romans 5, Paul turns to the idea of how do we live this life having been justified by faith because we have received this gift. What do we do with it? What is the life God has welcomed us into? And the first focus he has is this hope that we enter the world back into. Seeing our sins, seeing the brokenness in the world, seeing the tragedies all around us, we can hope in glory. Because we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God, which is more than an end to hostility. And if, if uh, take the situation in Russia and Ukraine right now, if the Russians just withdrew today, there would be a kind of peace, right? There'd be no more fighting. Ukrainian soldiers could, you know, probably secure their borders as best as they could. Russian soldiers could go back to their homes or their units. The fighting would be over, but a kind of peace, but not, not really. Ukrainians and Russians would not be reconciled. What would it take for Ukrainians, Russians withdraw, and Ukrainians to embrace their Russian neighbors? For Russians and Ukrainians to realize together that shoulder to shoulder they can accomplish more in the world and for each other than they can at odds with each other? So they forgive each other and they extend mercy and grace and they rebuild together? What would that take? That is the kind of peace we have with God. Not just done with hostility, but that God has welcomed us even when we were enemies Christ died for us so that he could reconcile us to himself, so that we could be sons and daughters. Not just so that he wouldn't hate us anymore. So he could love us. And we could love him. And so we have access, Paul says, verse 2, we have access through Jesus by faith, by trusting what God has done into this grace in which we stand. And our first parents were cast out of the garden because of their sin. When the tabernacle and the temple were built, there was a curtain erected. You know, only the priests were allowed in the courts of the temple and only the high priest once a year all the way into the most central room. The whole story of the Old Testament is how access has been denied. And it needs blood and God's revelation and the mercy of God to bring that back. But now in Jesus, we have free access. Those gates of glory have been opened wide and the veil was torn in two. And so we stand in grace. Free access through Christ. So maybe you're here today and one of the discouragements that you're facing is that you're really tired of trying to be good enough for God. You have a sin that you struggle with particularly. And you've failed again this week. And you resolved again this week. I will not sin in that way anymore. And within three or four days, you'd already broken your commitment. And it just feels exhausting. How will you ever 
see this besetting sin free? How will you be free of that? How will you see it gone in your life and you're tired? Or there's, you know, maybe you've got young children in the home and you're, you're just tired of seeing yourself and the interactions you have with them and how quickly provoked you are to anger and how quickly you can provoke them to anger, how the stresses and the busyness of life can just kind of sweep you past and you look back on your week and you think, have we done anything to help them understand what God is like? How can God be pleased with our parenting? When you look around your community, maybe something in your family, in your neighborhood, and you're tired. Jesus, how can you like me? The good news for you today, beloved, is that you don't need to try. You can stop trying. You have free access into grace. You have been welcomed into the throne room of God. He is not waiting for you to prove your worth. He does not have a checklist which you must meet before he will shed his love on you. And it's permanent access. It's not like a trial run. You know, new hire, give you a couple weeks, see how you do. That's not what Christ has secured for us. Permanent access into this grace in which we stand. And it's not one-time admittance, like if you, if you leave, you can't ever come back. And it's not something we run through to get somewhere else. This is where we live. This is home. This is the home we sing about, that we will one day and soon be in visibly and face-to-face and bodily when Christ returns. But that in grace, Christ has gone into the heavenly places. And we have that anchor there, beyond that veil, to hold us secure. So this is where we live. We stand in this grace. Paul's going to unpack that idea for the rest of chapter 5. If that seems to be particularly resonating with you this morning, I'm just going to encourage you to keep reading this afternoon. And you see how Paul talks about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light where grace reigns. And the thing, other thing maybe to think about is because it's home, you don't have to hide there like you don't belong. So if you've done any work with foster care or adoption work, you know, part of the the difficulty of bringing a new person into your home and a child is the attachment issues that come along. And, they, you know, they, they come into your home and you're not really sure. They're not really sure how long will this last. And maybe the child's been to three or four placements and the trauma is massive. And they're kind of convinced it's just going to be a few, a few weeks or a few months before we're done with this one and I'm on to the next. This is home. You are beloved through Christ by the Father. You don't have to hide in the corner hoping you're not discovered. And my sense among this church is that if you're new here, visiting here, you don't have to hide in the corners here either. But the hospitality you will find here is the hospitality you'll receive from the Lord. Standing there in God's grace with this promise of peace with God and the gift of God's righteousness, we rejoice, the ESV says, or it'll footnote, boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's a place where I really sympathize with faithful translators because the The word is really boast. Boasting means to really kind of say glorious things about something you're really sure of. That's what that means in the Greek there, to talk in glowing terms about something you're really sure of. But, of course, in English, we only use it to talk about talking about ourselves, right? Somebody boasts is someone who's really sure of himself and so can't stop talking about himself. So I get it why they don't use that word in our English. They say rejoice. But what I'm afraid is is that you hear rejoice and you think, I'm going to sing about the hope of the glory of God, and I'm going to be really happy about it. And you should sing about the hope of the glory of God, and you should be really happy about it. But what Paul means here is we talk out loud 
to other people about how sure we are of glory. That's what it means when he says we rejoice, we boast, we glory in this hope of glory that the king of glory has entered. The gates are open and you and I will one day meet there. And then we say that out loud to each other in glowing terms, how good God is, how confident we are. So the most obvious application kind of is that we boast in our glory is to boast in it this week. Think of who might need to know that glory is sure and certain, how good God is and that they can know him. Maybe it's another brother or sister in the church going through a hard time. Maybe it's someone at your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your family who doesn't know the Lord. Let me just encourage you, begin to pray. How might you just speak in glowing terms about this hope that you have, the glory that's coming as the world looks so broken? So the first thing Paul encourages us to boast in is that we we boast in glory. We rejoice in glory. And then Paul says, uh, verse 3, not only that, like there's more. Not only do they get the glory of God and the welcome into his eternal kingdom, but more than that, we boast in sufferings. I don't, I don't think that's what you expect when you hear more than that, right? Like, hey, glory's coming. Hey, and also suffering. But that's what Paul does, right? And so point two, the second thing we boast in is, is suffering. It's a weird thing to say. Maybe even it sounds kind of cold-hearted. Depending on where you're at this morning, it might sound, it might sound very sort of cold or, or even driven by self-loathing. You Christians are always down on yourselves. <laughs> I'm talking about how hard things are. But, but no, he's, he's not motivated by cold-heartedness or self-loathing. We boast in our suffering for a very specific reason. Not because we just love going through hard times, but because we know what God does with our sufferings. Right? We have this very specific confidence that we boast in these sufferings we're experiencing because those sufferings will produce endurance. We have this hope of glory and that when that whole glory doesn't manifest itself in our lives here yet, we practice waiting. We endure. We look back at what Christ did on the cross and we see the love of God displayed there beyond doubt. And we look forward to what Christ has promised, that he is coming back. And so we can endure right now whatever suffering it might be. It might, might be outright persecution for your, for your faith. It might be loss of a job or economic difficulties. Uh, it might be ostracism or mockery. It might be you know, sickness and disease. Any kinds of, all the kinds of suffering. It's a very broad category. But whatever it is that's like short of glory, you recognize it, you're honest about it, and it gives us the chance to wait. Our sufferings produce endurance. We bear up under. And that endurance produces character. That word is a tested character. Like gold refined in fire. You pull precious ore out of the ground and it's all mixed in with impurities. And so you put gold in the furnace or a smelter and you burn off the impurities so that what's really there is more pure and refined. Right? The, the, the fire doesn't create gold. It reveals what's really gold. And the sufferings don't create faith or hope. They reveal the faith that's already there. It burns away the things we might have been tempted to put an anchor down in my children's health or this job I thought was going to last me 20 more years or the vacation I was looking forward to or whatever those things are that tempt us and count as suffering. We realize, oh, I, I, I put too much there, too much hope there, but I'm waiting on the day when Christ comes back and all of his promises are visible and fulfilled. And so the suffering produces endurance 
We learn to wait. That endurance tests and refines us, produces this tested character so that everyone can see that we really do trust this glory that we are hoping in. We trust the God who's given it to us as a gift, and that produces more hope. So we get more hope as the process, as the result of the process from our sufferings. Because we see in ourselves, oh, I really do believe that. I really do think he's going to come because I've gone through the ringer. I've gone through the sufferings and I'm still here. You're still here. Praise God. What an act of God, his kindness to you. And that should just give more hope. And when you're here next week, more hope. And the week after that, more hope because we're waiting faithfully, being refined and made more and more like our Savior. So, so it's a suffering Produces character, character, endurance, endurance, character, character, hope, and that hope will not, will not put us to shame. How can you be so confident? How can this be, have Paul be so confident? It's not because he has confidence in us, but he, 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 he pins that hope that we will come through this process unscathed or even refined, more filled with hope because of the work of God. In verse 5, this hope will not put us to shame because God has poured his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Even that work of endurance. Paul says, is guaranteed because God is doing it by the work of his spirit. He is pouring the love of God into your heart and mind, our lives, so that we can see the goodness of Jesus and know that God has loved us in Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit is an amazing, confident booster. Gives us incredible hope. So that we can say, Glory is coming. And someone else can look at your life and say, doesn't look very glorious. And you can answer back, I know. It doesn't depend on me. I mean, listen, I'm an Aggie. So, you know, the, the worst thing that happened in August was they like ranked us real high as a football team. And if you've been an Aggie for any length of time, your heart probably dropped a little bit because you know that means it's going to all fall apart. And sure enough, right? So I hope you guys didn't do too much boasting back in August, fellow Aggies, because, right, we're eating our words now. And the world looks at Christians that way so often. You have these grand promises. And you look so ordinary. And our answer back is yes. Yes and amen. We're worse than ordinary. If you knew us half as well as we knew us, you'd be appalled that Jesus would love us. Which is where Paul gets this confidence, this hope that God is working in us, even when we are his enemies. The Holy Spirit has poured his love out on us. And we know that because while we were still weak, at the right time, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Which means there's nothing in your life you can show to him that's going to make him like recoil in shock. I didn't realize what I got when I bought you. He knew exactly what he was getting when he shed his blood for us. And he did it anyway. I, I wonder if like right now you're resisting the feeling of being so overwhelmingly loved by God. We just naturally sort of push back against that kind of effusive grace. That he would just pour that out on us because it really does undo us. So if you feel, I mean, if you're feeling that right now, let me just encourage you. Breathe and relax and be open. You, you really are, if you are in Christ, loved like that. And if you're not in Christ, 
Are you like pushing back? I can't be loved like that. If if the God who created the world loved me that way, my life would have to rearrange, be turned upside down. And I want to say, yes, actually turned right side up. Because you'll find at the heart of the universe, at the heart of the created world, is a God who is love. And it's because he is love that he is angry at sin. It is because he is so good, he must judge all of the ways that we distort and dishonor his goodness and glory. But it's also because it is of his love that at exactly the right time, he sent his own son to die for us in our sins. So that we might be reconciled to him. We would scarcely die for a righteous person. We know how this works. You've got to be really good to be worthy of that kind of sacrifice. Though perhaps, Paul says, maybe a very good person, you might dare even die. But God is so overwhelming in his love that he is, yeah, the right time is when we were dead in our sins. And being convinced of that, convinced that God loves you like that, means you can endure like for not just a day, not just for a year. But if the diagnosis is chronic and it means a decade or two of suffering and pain, you can endure. If, it, if, it, if the suffering is the death of a child, even that, a scar and an ache you will live with for however long, it will never be healed to its fullness. You can endure with that. Traumatic memories that are just intrusive, out of nowhere, that you just can't seem to get over. And you've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years. Even that you can endure. Because you know that that is producing this gospel character, which gives you hope that one day they will. The wounds will be healed. The memories will be gone. Everything will be redeemed. And you will be welcomed into glory. So in verse 9, Paul now shifts from the confidence we have right now. We boast, we speak out loud of the glory that's coming. Even in our sufferings, we can boast in those. It's the same word, by the way, in verse 3. I don't think I said that. But that rejoicing in our sufferings is the same boasting. It's an opportunity to speak in glowing terms about what God is doing. And he turns now to what, what will happen when we stand before his judgment seat. So in verse 9, we learn that we don't, we don't just boast in what we're looking forward to in glory or what God is doing for us now, but we boast in God himself. So verse 9, we're now, Paul transports us, right? Since now we've been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Uh, when I was growing up, most of our sort of, um, evangelical churches, I think we used the word saved to mean what happened when we came to Christ. And that's fine. Paul uses it that way too. We were saved from the penalties of our sins. We were cleansed and forgiven, united to Christ. But here Paul is talking about the day when we will stand before the judgment seat, when Christ comes back. And the king of glory is seated on his throne, and all the nations are gathered, and the wrath of the land comes. And on that day, this salvation that we've been confident about because of Jesus, on that day, we will be vindicated. Because on that day, we will be saved by God, from God's wrath, by Jesus Christ. Paul's point here, right? It, it, well, we were still sinners, he died for us. So because we've been justified in verse 9, we will be saved on that day from his wrath because, verse 10, if while we were enemies we were reconciled, how much more now that we're in, now that we stand in grace, now that the gates of glory have been thrown open and we stand in this grace, how much more 
Will we be saved by his life? Now that he's risen from the dead and is reigning at the right hand of the God, he's done the big hard thing. He's forgiven you of your sins. A holy and good God has forgiven you of your sins. What could be more difficult in all of life, in all of creation than that, for a good and holy God to excuse our rebellion against him? And yet he did it, the death of his own son. And if he's done that big hard thing, this is Paul's point, it will be easy for him on that day to apply that work for you and for me. Because the wrath has already been poured out on Christ. There is none left for you. If you are in Christ, there is no wrath left for you. And if you're not, you can embrace and enter this hope too. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Turn from your sins. Talk to any of the brothers or sisters here who know Christ or members of his church. Pastors. Mickey. I'd love to tell you what that looks like. To know the hope of standing before God and being welcome in Christ. So we rejoice and we boast in God. Our confidence is not at all in ourselves, but it is in God himself. If he justified us by the death of his son, how much more will we be saved because he raised his son to life? And so, verse 11, more than that, we rejoice in God. We boast in God. We hope in in God. Sometimes we get the wrong idea. The father was really angry. And the son came to earth to talk God out of his anger for us. And so now the son is at the right hand of the father. The father is like, I really should destroy them. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. See, I paid for them. All right, boy. Because you did that, I guess I won't. That's the total wrong idea. The father sent the son. It is God the father who loved us and planned our salvation with son and spirit together from eternity past. The Father delights to pour out his love on us. The Father is not like really hoping to pour out his wrath and, okay, just by the skin of their teeth, Jesus did the right thing. No, they, Father, Son, and Spirit all conspired together before they even spoke the world into existence so that we would stand before the Father on that day and know his love. And that's the hope we saying, right? He doesn't need anything. He didn't create us because he needs us or because he was bored or because he was lonely or because he needed to be loved back. He was Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. A perfect community, three in one, beyond our imagination. He created us out of the overflow of that love and glory and joy to welcome us in. So we boast in God himself, the Father put forward his Son to reconcile us. We were enemies and he sent Jesus to make his enemies his children. He delights to call you sons. He delights to call you daughter. And the son did it willingly. For the joy set before him endured that cross so that he might bring us to God. He wants brothers and sisters in his train as he goes through those open gates of glory to lead us in with him as a full company of the redeemed. And we are there and with such hope because the spirit is pouring this love out into our hearts. That the Spirit is working, I pray even now by His Word, as He always does, is working in your life week in and week out, day in and day out, is keeping and securing and changing us, is making this sanctifying process successful. Father, Son, and Spirit all together conspired for our salvation. So we boast in God. Isn't He good? Isn't He glorious? Isn't He great? Isn't He amazing? He is so holy and just, and we should rightly tremble and fear 
And yet in his holiness and justice, he shows his love and his light. And so we can go into the marketplaces around our family dinner tables and look at our kids. We can go into our work, our work and our neighborhoods across the street and family members, extended family who don't know the Lord. And we can just celebrate. God is so good. Are you weak? Are you weak? Are you a sinner? Are you his enemy? Fear not. Fear not. Put no confidence in your flesh. Put it entirely in God. Boast about him. Speak about him. Open your mouth and tell people. Each other, your children, your community. God is good. Gracious. Glorious king. Let me pray and we'll come to the king's table. We are so thankful, God, that we have this confidence. And we desperately, desperately need the work of your spirit to assure us so often, Father, as we've confessed our weaknesses, one of those is certainly our failure to keep the depths of confidence in you that you deserve. And we too often listen to Satan and his temptations, that you are less good than you are, that you are holding out on us, that, that your promises may not come in all their fullness, Father. We are thankful, thankful for your forgiveness even in that, that it is exactly our weakness that moved you to compassion, to Purchase us with Christ's blood to unite us into his body. I give you thanks and pray for the grace to give you thanks out loud to others. Help us boast in you and all you have done in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.